Hello, friends and enemies. Welcome to the Old Movie Lady podcast. I'm your host, the titular Old Movie Lady, but you can also call me Marg. This is episode 17 of the series The Wampus Frolic. Join me as I explore the lives, careers, and public personas of a group of dreamers of stars to be and stars that weren't. The Wampus Baby Stars. It's 1927, and I haven't done a proper check-in with the Wampus members in a while. The poor boys were having a rough time. Under the leadership of Pete Smith, who would end up hospitalized later that year, I think he was fine, the membership in the Western Association of Motion Picture Advertisers had grown. And grown. And there were some that felt that they were letting just anybody in. Which is a problem, as being a member of the Wampus meant that you were eligible for life insurance, and that was getting expensive, and it gave you a boost professionally, even if you were a dumbass. It has been, apparently, too easy for a member of the Wampus, irrespective of mental qualifications, to obtain employment in positions of high responsibility, wrote the ever-sassy Hollywood vagabond in March 1927. We know of instances where young men who have won their spurs years since have been ruled out in favor of some trollop who happened to be a member of this or that in Hollywood. The Wampus have been one of the grave offenders, consciously or otherwise, they added. I am obsessed with the choice of the word trollop here. The Vagabond suggested that if the Wampus insisted on pulling strings to get its members' jobs, it should at least make sure that all its members were qualified publicity men, and not trollops, and get rid of those who aren't. Instead of worrying so much about the annual frolic, it might be a grand move for the Wampus to get together and clean house. Obviously, you and I don't want them to stop worrying about the frolic, but I get the general idea. Later on in the year, the Wampus got into some hot water with the Associated Press for spreading fake news. Asinine exploitation stories on motion picture star and celebrities of the silver screen have become an extreme nuisance, said a representative from the AP. It all came to a head because that September, Wampus members from First National planted a story in the press about a feud between two of its directors, Al Rogel, married to Wampus Baby of 1925 Ina Gregory, and Edwin Carew, father of Wampus Baby of 1927 Rita Carew, threats of armed warfare, seriously, and a fistfight between the two men were reported because of a dispute over a filming location. But it was all bunk tail between its legs, the Wampus organization had to promise to not outright lie to legitimate newspapers. I'm starting to think the Hollywood vagabond had a point. But let's get to the meat of the episode already, shall we? In my last episode, The Unknown Sister, I told you all about seven of the 13 Wampus Baby stars of 1927. Iris Stewart, Ada Mae Vaughn, Natalie Kingston, Helen Costello, Gladys McConnell, Frances Lee, and Martha Sleeper. Get comfy and get ready to hear about the rest. Sally Rand 
Born as Helen Gould Beck in 1904 in rural Missouri, the future Sally Rand was just 13 years old when she first appeared on stage as a chorus girl in a Kansas City nightclub. During her teen years, she joined a juvenile vaudeville troupe and worked as an artist's model. By the time she arrived in Hollywood in 1924, she'd performed as a dancer across many vaudeville stages under the name Billy Beck, which she spelled B-I-L-L-Y-E. Billy? Billy Beck. According to Screenland's April 1925 issue, the inciting incident that made her leave vaudeville for filmdom was appendicitis. Laid up in the hospital after surgery, she decided that while she loved being on stage above all else, the practical career move was to try Hollywood on for size. Once there, she signed with the Senate lot around 1924, also working with Hal Roach and the Christie Company. According to the Exhibitor's Herald, she contributed the spice of the program to two real comedies, which included diving stunts and doing contortionist acts. She didn't spend a great deal of time in the world of two real comedies, though, because she very quickly caught the eye of Cecil B. DeMille. He not only cast her in a small, uncredited role in his 1925 film The Golden Bed, he also renamed her. Legend has it that he saw a Rand McNally atlas lying on a table, and there you go. With her new name and contract, she did a few low-budget nothing films while DeMille decided what to do with his latest discovery, whom he started calling America's Most Beautiful Girl. You may recall that the last time I spoke at length about Cecil B. DeMille and his ways, that while he was a master of publicity, that publicity was usually for himself. His company, his films, his roster of talent, rather than any one person on that roster. You could be a star, but not any star, a DeMille star. Anyway, in that vein, he spent much of 1925 building Sally up and getting her name out there in conjunction with his own. In the September 1925 issue of Picture Play, for example, she is featured along with some of the other young women on his roster in a piece called What DeMille Offers. In the December issue of Photoplay, her portrait is captioned, She is one of the prettiest girls that ever graced the gilded palaces of Cecil B. DeMille's pictures. What the DeMille contract will do for Sally remains to be seen, wrote Picture Play. She has the instinct, not developed, but simply an impulse fumbling for the accoutrements that attract the eye. Already she is being decked out in pearl headdresses and chic frocks. Though diminutive, provocative with youth and naive, she seems rather individually certain of her right to the spotlight. That quality caused her to stand out pointedly among the comedy girls, and at parties she manages, by sheer personality, to be the focus of the youngsters' attention. She has individuality, youthful charm, and self-confidence. In these, perhaps, DeMille sees that flash of personality which can be developed into another Swanson or Joy. So, basically, if there is enough there to work with, DeMille will find it and make her a star. 
If he doesn't, that means that there wasn't enough, and that's on Sally and not him. Towards the end of the year, Sally had a featured role in the DeMille-produced Braveheart with Rod LaRock. Not a starring role by any stretch, but good for her profile. The next year, it was much of the same. She did get a profile in Screenland's 1926 issue. Sally Rand sets the pace. That wasn't focused on her employer, but instead a simple excuse to show some large photos of Sally doing... I think it's the Charleston? We'll have to ask Joan Crawford. DeMille put her in four pictures that year, three of which were with Rod LaRock, including Gigolo, which sounds exciting based on the title alone, but in which she only played the tourist girl in Paris. Photoplay's August 1926 issue said of Sally, Just the girl to play a high-class homewrecker or a grade-A vamp. If she ever cuts loose as an actress, here is a new star. Wouldn't that be nice for Sally? Wouldn't it indeed? But having not yet cut loose, at least in 1927 she was named a Wampus Baby Star. It's hard to clock any immediate difference that this designation made. While she had seven credited roles that year, it's hard to argue that she was allowed to let loose. Except in studio-arranged photo shoots, that is. Like one where she was snapped wearing just a large valentine and another featured in Photoplay's June 1927 issue where she is shown doing a number of acrobatic contortions. Sally Rand of the DeMille Studio shows what a hard-working girl can make of herself, they say. A pretzel, I guess. By the following year, DeMille, apparently deciding that he couldn't find anything to make a star out of with Sally after all, had released her from her contract. She began freelancing, but by the end of 1928, her time in Hollywood was basically up. And that could have been the end of it. But just because Cecil B. DeMille couldn't figure out what it was that was going to make Sally a star, and just because that stardom wasn't on the screen, doesn't mean that we should count Sally out just yet. Returning first to vaudeville, and then developing a special show for the small stages of intimate Prohibition-era speakeasies, Sally Rand became a burlesque icon. Her fan dance number, done not really in the nude but wearing a bodysuit that gave the illusion of nudity, involved using two large pink ostrich feathers to cover and then scandalously uncover bits of her body to titillate the audience. Ooh, there's a leg. Ooh, a bit of bum. Some side boob. It was a big hit in the early 1930s, and with her trademark peekaboo style, she developed other routines like the bubble dance and became one of the best-known and most successful adult performers of her era. She was even able to translate this into some mainstream stage work, and the occasional return to Hollywood, including a supporting role in 1934's Bolero, starring George Raft and Carol Lombard. Sally got to do a version of her infamous fan dance, and really, it's quite beautiful. Her career as a famous burlesque performer and provocateur continued for the next several decades. Later in life, she was quoted as saying, I haven't been out of work since the day I took my pants off. 
there were glimmers of her daring in her early Hollywood career, but branching out on her own and forging an altogether different path is what brought her to stardom. I won't say that the Wampus were right, since it wasn't the silver screen that brought Sally Rand her success. But she did become a household name when most of her baby star contemporaries were forgotten. Rita Carew It's no big mystery why Rita Carew had any sort of Hollywood career at all. She was born Violette Fox, an objectively much cooler and easier to pronounce name, in June 1909, the daughter of Jay Fox, who would later change his name to Edwin Carew. Edwin featured prominently when I told you about Dolores Del Rio, Wampus Baby Star of 1926. He was a successful director and producer who discovered Dolores while he was on his honeymoon, obsessively ran her life and career, and tried to manipulate her into marrying him before she fired his ass. So yeah, that's Rita's dad. He gave her her first film role in 1925's Joanna, in which Dolores also appeared. Both Rita and Dolores were given contracts with Edwin at this time, too, which, you know, now that I think of it, may have been an attempt by Edwin to convince his wife that his interests in Dolores were paternalistic. See, I think of her the same way as I think of my own daughter. Ew. Not that I think he signed his own daughter purely to cover up his feelings towards Dolores. He also signed his daughter because she practically insisted upon it. Or, as Pitcher Play put it in their December 1926 issue, she implored and begged and wheedled him for the opportunity. In the piece called To the Manor Born, they mention all sorts of second-generation nepotism beneficiaries, but stress that for Rita, she will still have to earn her place in Hollywood. It is definitely understood, however, between Rita and her father that she must work just as hard for what she may attain as any less fortunately related girl. She will, of course, have the advantage of Mr. Carew's personal interest and advice, but they both intend that she shall fight her own battles up the ladder. Okay, sure. Rita appeared in High Steppers in 1926, directed by her father, and that was it for the year. Rita was clearly added to the Wampas list, apparently as a forerunner, because of her father and the promise of the next project he was putting her in, Resurrection, released just weeks after the Wampus Frolic and Ball. It was a starring vehicle for Dolores Del Rio. At least the two young ladies appear to have been friends. According to Screenland, when Rita had to have quite a serious operation on her throat, it was at Dolores's home that she recuperated. That operation might well explain why Rita made no other films that year. In Picture Play's April 1927 issue, they remarked that Rita had entirely disappeared from the screen. Which isn't exactly true, since earlier that year she had appeared as the leading lady, no less, in The Stronger Will. In the review I found, I thought at first they were calling it an excellent picture, but that's actually the name of the low-budget production company. The Exhibitor's Herald did say that Rita was lovely and talented, but what good is that if no one saw the movie? 
Still, she hadn't actually disappeared, and she did show up in small roles in two more daddy-directed films in 1928, Ramona and Revenge, both starring Dolores. This review of Revenge from Picture Play is one of the few to actually mention Rita, and it's also absolutely cutting, so just listen. More than the usual number of close-ups fall to the lot of Miss Del Rio, who has not exactly shown aversion to them in the past. But through them all, she does not succeed in making one feel that it matters, or that she believes a bit of it. The same holds true for the others, including Mr. Mason, Rita Carew, Jose Crespo, and James Marcus. Their efforts are given in vain to a singularly unsatisfying pitcher. In 1928, Rita married Leroy Mason. According to her, he was not a good guy, who also appeared in Revenge. After her marriage, she retired from her film career, such as it was, save for a couple of shorts. Rita did do some stage work, quite independently from any strings her father could pull for her, and later worked in a fashion boutique. And that's it. Were the Wampus right about Rita Carew? Well, well, no, of course not. <laughs> Patricia Avery The Reluctant Cinderella, reads a headline in Motion Picture Magazine's January 1927 issue. A few months ago, Patricia Avery was a stenographer on the Metro lot. Now she is a very promising movie actress. Born in November 1902, Patricia was 24 when she was named a Wampus Baby Star. But as she had been working in the steno pool at Metro, though she had also done some extra work, at that point she had zero credits to her name. She had been cast in Lillian Gish's next project, Annie Laurie, in a pretty prominent role considering her lack of experience. To be plucked from obscurity to play opposite a big star like Lillian probably did feel like a Cinderella story for Patricia, and certainly everyone was excited for what was in the cards, including the Wampus guys. The film was released in May 1927, and it was a flop. This was hardly Patricia's fault, but even though she actually got good notices for her work in the film, Metro was done with her in a snap, both as a performer and as a stenographer. My whole enthusiasm is centered on little Pat Avery, partly, I suppose, because my heart always goes out to any girl who gets a bad break, said Pitcher Play's June 1927 issue. She is a dear, ingratiating, and entirely natural girl, and her work in Annie Laurie is lovely, even against the competition of Lillian Gish. Yet, for no apparent reason, Metro Goldwyn didn't take up its option on her services, and now she has to go out and battle for recognition in the freelance field. They continue to point out that since she had previously just worked in administration, she didn't even know anybody else outside of MGM, so the poor thing was freelancing with no connections. She managed to land some Poverty Row productions, but all in all only made three more films. She married art director Merrill Pyle in 1926, and contrary to what her Wikipedia says, they divorced in the early 1930s. Honestly, because there was so little career to talk about with Patricia, I just went deep on Ancestry.ca. 
I found her working as a housekeeper in 1940, and then, I believe, eventually remarrying and becoming a homemaker. Oh, that didn't take very long to go through, though. Just like Patricia Avery's career. Ba-dum-ching. Needless to say, another miss for the Wampas. Please excuse this interruption for a real ad from Picture Play in 1927. The old movie lady would like to apologize in advance for this ad. So slender, it pays to reduce. Exercise and diet carried to extremes may correct the result for a while, but the right way, the easy way, is to correct the cause. That way is Marmola prescription tablets. No abnormal exercise or diet is required. If you need help, learn this easy, pleasant, scientific way to fat reduction. Do that in fairness to yourself. You will be amazed and delighted. Marmola prescription tablets are now sold by all druggists at $1 per box. Marmola prescription tablets, the pleasant way to reduce. Those were laxatives, and they were banned by the FDA in the early 1930s. Barbara Kent I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, but being an actress was not it. Barbara Kent told interviewer Michael G. Anchorage later in life, Barbara Kent, a pretty young newcomer who plays her first part with John Gilbert in Flesh and the Devil, has taken umbrage at newspaper statements that she was a former shop girl, said Picture Play's January 1927 issue. It was reported on her discovery that the casting director had first seen her in a Hollywood store, and a romantic-minded newspaper man took it to mean that she worked there. Miss Kent, in a high state of indignation, and evidently working under the theory that some stigma attaches itself to working in stores, asserts in a rage that she never did. "'I won a beauty contest,' she says. "'Some of Hollywood's best waitresses have also started as beauty contest winners.'" I don't know why Barbara, born in December 1907 as Barbara Cloutman in Canada, hey, was quite so pissy about being called a shop girl. But I love that dig at the end. Don't get too high on yourself, Barb. The story is essentially true, at least. In 1925, Barbara graduated high school. Her parents entered her into a beauty pageant. She won it and was crowned Miss Hollywood. She turned 18 that December and in the new year signed a contract with Universal. Apparently, it was lovely Paul Coner who first spotted Barbara and invited her to join Universal's new training program. Via this program, Universal gave her a new surname, Kent, and let her skip the step of proving herself in serials before graduating into westerns. Instead, they quite quickly placed her as a leading lady in one of their second-choice westerns, Prowlers of the Night. The Flesh and the Devil came next, a loan out to MGM. She had a supporting role there, but it was a prestige production. She shared scenes with John Gilbert, and even though it was Greta Garbo who got the majority of the justified attention, 
Barbara did get some special notice in reviews. In Moving Picture World, for example, they mention her charm and call her performance a convincing bit of work. So, on the strength of this, she was christened a Wampus Baby star. Given that she had only just turned 19 at the end of 1926, and that she was quite petite, in early 1927, most of her publicity refers to Barbara in youthful, innocent terms. Always a smiling face from little Barbara Kent, recent Wampus Baby, making great strides. The Exhibitor's Daily captured a photo with her boss, Carl Lemley, in a feature called Uncle Carl's Scrapbook. The Exhibitor's Herald called her One Beautiful Child. Anyway, Universal probably wasn't super excited when, after they loaned her out to make a Rex the Horse movie, Scandal threatened their newest ingenue. From Variety's review of No Man's Law, which they accidentally called No Man's Land, Miss Kent looks and acts well. A couple of the almost nude scenes will not stand much chance with the censors out of town. A couple of what now? To be fair, it was barely a blip of a scandal. For one thing, Barbara wasn't nude. She was almost nude. That is, wearing a flesh-toned bodysuit in the swimming scene. She later claimed it wasn't even her, but a body double. And while there was worry that local censors would be in an uproar, if they were, it was a mild uproar. Had the film been a bigger success, it probably would have been a bigger deal overall. If you appear almost nude but no one was in the audience, did you really appear almost nude at all? Scandal somewhat accidentally avoided, Barbara continued on with no small amount of momentum at Universal. Films like The Small Bachelor, Stop That Man, Alone Out, and That's My Daddy, followed. 1928 brought her most important role to date, co-starring with Glenn Tyrone, in Lonesome. Released as two versions, one silent and one sound, not full sound, but there were talking sequences and sound effects, it was one of Universal's jewel productions that year. The National Film Board deemed the romantic drama an exceptional picture, its highest honor. While most of the reviews were extremely positive, especially for the technological achievements of the picture, which also included creative camera work, the film daily had some things to say about Barbara. The main trouble with Lonesome is that Barbara Kent is not yet a good enough trooper to carry half of the entire picture upon her shoulders. She failed to establish any sympathy for herself, so that nobody minded when she became separated from the man she loved. That part should have been given to a girl with more experience. She may have been inexperienced, and overall Lonesome probably was too artsy for the mainstream crowd, but both leads were praised for their speaking voices, a sentiment echoed about Barbara in the Exhibitor's Herald, who mentioned her splendid voice in the December 1st, 1928 issue. So she went into 1929 and the sound era with a lot to be optimistic about. It's a shame that some of the studios were having a hell of a time with the sound era themselves. Barbara only did two films in 1929, one at her home studio, Universal, and one on special loan out to Harold Lloyd to play his leading lady. Universal's The Shakedown was a part talkie released in two versions, 
one silent, one with sound. This was a time-consuming endeavor, but also standard for the period, as vast numbers of theaters, especially in smaller locales, simply couldn't afford to renovate their operations for this new kind of movie. It'd be foolish to throw away that kind of revenue, however, it also meant that production schedules were extended. Additionally, as Universal was not really handling the transition to sound well, it's actually safe to say that they didn't think it was a transition at all, more of a passing fad, they were sharing recording equipment between productions, slowing things down even further. And though it was great for Barbara to be chosen as Harold Lloyd's leading lady in Welcome Danger, it was also a painfully slow production. First envisioned as a pure silent, most of the filming was done when it was decided that nope, it should be Harold's first ever talkie. All of this is to say, no wonder poor Barbara's output was suddenly throttled. Her universal contract ended in the early 1930s, and without a home studio, while she worked, she lacked guidance in her roles. She appeared alongside Harold Lloyd again in Feet First, 1930, but frankly didn't appear to have any particular knack for comedy. But she may not have had a knack for drama either. The acting is not particularly proficient in the leading parts, said a review for her 1931 film Grief Street. Another for 1930's The Night Ride says that her co-star, Edward G. Robinson, walks away from the picture as he was the only one doing real acting. For Chinatown After Dark, 1931, where Barbara played one of the few not in yellow face, the review simply says, Miss Kent is attractive in her pretty simplicity. So basically, while she was rarely actually bad in films, she wasn't great either. And I think what it comes down to is that Barbara didn't care too much about being a great actor. In 1932, Barbara married her agent, Harry Eddington, who was also Greta Garbo's agent, among others. After a few low, low-budget endeavors, she tapped out in 1933. Remember Barbara Kent? asked the new movie magazine in their December 1934 issue. While Barbara stepped out quietly of the limelight at the time of her marriage to Harry Eddington, who was Garbo's manager. After several years of retirement, friend-husband feels that the missus is ready to try her wings again. So you'll be seeing Barbara in an MGM production one of these days right soon. I'm going to start calling my husband friend-husband and see if he likes it. It's all well and good for Harry to feel that Barbara was ready for the limelight again, but nothing with MGM materialized. Her comeback resulted in just three supporting roles in 1935 and nothing again until 1941, and then she was all done. Luckily, Barbara didn't mind so much. As she later told interviewer Michael G. Anchorage, It was a short career, and I was never terribly enthusiastic about being an actress. And, by all accounts, her life post-Hollywood was bustling with activity, including golfing and fishing and learning how to fly a plane, which she did well into her 80s. She lived to be over 100. Was Barbara Kent ever a star? Well, not by most metrics. She got close. She hovered right below the line for years, never quite rising to the occasion. That said, I think she was the most successful Wampus pick of 1927, 
and considering that she never had much enthusiasm for it, I think she did pretty well. Mary McAllister I feel like it's been a while since I've featured an actual baby star in the Old Movie Lady podcast, but Mary McAllister comes close. She made her debut all the way back in 1915, when she was just seven years old. I believe 1908 is the correct birth year, although 1909 is also sometimes cited. As a child performer, Little Mary, as she was dubbed, appeared in roughly 19 shorts over a two-year period. Then in 1917, she had a string of well-received features. Pants, Young Mother Hubbard, The Killjoy, and Sadie Goes to Heaven. Some of these featured her dog Bobo, and let me tell you, so freaking cute these two. I have no idea what breed Bobo was. He was small and lumpy, mostly white with black patches, including a spot around one eye and a dark eyebrow over the other. I just love him. Do you think if I Google small, lumpy dog, I'll be able to find the breed? (laughs) During this period, Mary McAllister was undoubtedly a star. She led her own films, she got loads of fan mail, she was frequently reported on in the press, and during the First World War, was even given an honorary ranking of sergeant by President Woodrow Wilson in a stunt to promote the war effort. Though she was dubbed the most lovable child actress on the screen, after 1917, Mary didn't appear on screen again until 1920 in a supporting role in a drama, and then not again until 1923. Fans were asking about her plenty, writing into the questions desk at many of the fan magazines, but the answer always remained the same. Mary McAllister is not playing on the screen at present, or some variation thereof. I couldn't find any specific reason why, but, you know, 11 to 15 is the world's most awkward age, so that's probably all there was to it. Around 1924, Mary signed with Universal, and they put her in some shorts and supporting roles, giving her a boost the following year as Jack Hoxie's leading lady in the westerns A Roaring Adventure and The Red Rider, and opposite William Desmond in the serial The Ace of Spades. Women in westerns tended to not have very much to do beyond being a wholesome symbol of stability for the hero and occasionally getting kidnapped. Mary didn't have to stretch too much or be believed in a different sort of light for those that remembered her as a sweet little girl. I wonder if Mary actually had it in her to stretch if the role required it. Take this review of 1926's The Sap in Picture Play. Mary McAllister is a colorless young lady who seems to belong just where she spends most of her time in the picture, sitting in a porch swing. Fine for sitting around, less ideal for action and emotion. The Film Daily mentioned her performance in the 1926 Norma Shearer film The Waning Sex, saying she was cute but not dangerous as the other woman. But considering that she was playing a man-hungry widow on trial for murder, I don't think cute is going to cut it. She was cute enough for the Wampus to add her to their 1927 list, but Universal didn't end up renewing her contract when the time came. As a freelancer, Mary found it difficult to stand out, though she did continue working with a variety of studios of wildly different levels of prestige. 
Mary Bryan or Mary McAllister is to be the choice of Harold Lloyd's leading lady in his next picture. It was announced in 1929. But, of course, if you've been paying attention in this episode, that role went to Barbara Kent. Mary didn't work at all in 1929 and finished her career off with a single credited role in 1930. Stars Who Have Vanished read a headline in Motion Picture Magazine's August 1932 issue. It gives little updates on a whole whack of performers, and Mary's is really rather nice. Mary McAllister, married well and is living in Hollywood. Her name is now Brigham. A blessed event impends. I think it's easy to blame the rocky transition from child star into adult star for what became of Mary McAllister's career. And though that was surely part of it, another part may simply have been a lack of the old razzle-dazzle. A colorless girl? Come on. At any rate, though she was certainly a child star, her stardom predated any predictions from the Wampus, and they can't take credit for that. Sally Phipps Well, Sally Phipps, born May 1911 as Nellie Bernice Bogdan, did make a couple of shorts as a three-year-old under the name Bernice Sawyer, she was not a child star in the same vein as Mary McAllister. That said, she was all of 15, which I still consider to be a child, when she made another stab at the movies, getting signed by Fox in 1926. Director Frank Borzage was a family friend, and he was the one to spot the teenager, don't like that, and encouraged her to pursue the opportunity at Fox instead of following her real dream, which was to become a lawyer. Oh, thanks, Frank. Fox put her to work in comedy shorts and then a supporting role in the feature Bertha the Sewing Machine Girl, but it was the promise of what's to come that saw her name added to the Wampus list. Fox has some very big things in prospect for Sally, said Hollywood Topics, and the company believes it has in her another Clara Bow. Spoiler, they didn't have another Clara Bow, of course. I would argue that they also didn't have some very big things for Sally either. Fox put her in a couple of program pictures, lower budget affairs, not the high-end artistic productions that they had for Janet Gaynor, for example, or even Olive Borden, though she did have an uncredited bit in Janet's film Sunrise. And shorts. Sally did so many shorts in 1927. All of this is understandable. According to Motion Picture News, she was the youngest contract player at Fox at the time, turning just 16 in May 1927. This was a way of giving her on-screen experience without taking the risk of starring her prematurely. Unlike some of our other teenage Wampus babies, Sally wasn't playing characters much older than herself. 1927's High School Hero, for example, was clearly a teen movie, and the short Girls was set at a college. Overall, Sally was marketed not simply for her youth, but for fellow youths. For example, her publicity liked to mention that she gave up her academic aspirations for the screen in a cheeky way that would not have appealed to parents of young ladies at all, but probably did appeal to the young ladies. In a piece called A Summary of Sally, 
in their April 1928 issue, Photoplay said that she really narrowly avoided tragedy because of once almost going highbrow, but said that a visit to Hollywood persuaded her that beauty is more valuable than brains. They also mentioned that she drove her own roadster. Little Sally Phipps' letters come mostly from girls and college lads, Photoplay then reported in their August edition. Her severest criticisms relate to her lingerie pictures. Fans were shocked at her undress. Sally was busy in a series of youth-marketed pictures throughout 1928, often being paired with Nick Stewart or Charles Morton. Not A-list stuff, but popular enough, and in 1929 it looked like Fox was ready to move her into more important films. She had a plum secondary leading lady role in Joy Street, but the film was a bust. Here's the final word in jazz-mad youth stories, said Motion Picture News. Final, because the public won't want to see any more pictures of a similar nature after taking a look at Joy Street. Shortly after, Fox let her go. I could learn no reason for this at the studio, executives explaining that in cases of this sort they prefer to let the player make his or her own announcement to save them embarrassment, wrote Pitcher Play, clearly as nosy as I am. Friends of Sally volunteered the information that she cannot take direction, seemingly absolutely unable to grasp what the director wants. Aw, bless her. She must have figured it out eventually, as even though, save for a couple of appearances in shorts, her film career was entirely over, Sally did appear successfully on Broadway. In 1931, at 20 years old, Sally married the heir to the Gimbel's department store, which I really only mention because of Elf. They divorced in 1935, and she later remarried and had a son. So no, Sally Phipps was never a movie star. And she certainly was no Clara Bow. Those trollops over at Wampus HQ didn't do a great job of predicting successful Hollywood careers in 1927. But many of their selections that year found their greatest achievements and aspirations were far away from the silver screen. And not to disagree with photoplay, except that I often do. I don't think that's too much of a tragedy at all. That's Curtains for 1927. Thank you for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, let me know. Carrier pigeons and telegrams are accepted, but if you're feeling a bit more progressive, send me an email at theoldmovielady at gmail.com. Leave a review on Apple or the platform of your choice or give me an impassioned shout-out on social media. I've been your host, Marg, the old movie lady, an unholy mess of a girl.